this is the performance performance based podcast where we talk about whatever we can as far as being paid for what what you accomplish not the time that you spend can right you say that yeah paying for yeah we want to pay for the value value based yeah and and I guess what and, and John talks about this at Redless because he wants he said we provide value one of the is one of the things so one of the things is it should be the producer should be producing more value than they're getting paid for actually however it needs to be consistent I mean, it needs to be more equitable in the fact that, again, I may be producing 100%, but you're paying me, you know, you're paying me 90% of the value. How, how, do, how, do you, how do you know what the value is? How do you determine the value of what you're doing? So, I mean, if you're selling a widget and the widget's a dollar, I mean, most companies are trying to keep their labor percentage between 20 and 30 percent. Um, right, well, that's in service-based businesses. But if you if you start adding equipment and stuff like that, so at ACS, their their goal is 20 percent. Um, and a lot of fast food places that um, that I've talked to, their their goal is 20 percent also. So like I know Chick Fil A is 20 percent. That's their goal. Twenty percent of revenue. That's what they pay their employees. Yeah, twenty percent of the revenue goes to employees. So every so for every dollar that somebody buys a chicken sandwich, twenty cents of that goes to pay the employees. Right. Okay. Where does the other eighty percent go? uh, The franchise takes like fifteen or twenty percent. And then the other so the is operating costs. Operating okay. costs and uh, uh, pay for the, uh, I mean, like profit. Or I should say gross profit. How much profit should someone expect? Um, 15%? So, at least the one chick boy that I know about their stuff, they're doing between 8 and 10%. Okay. All right. But they were also, their goal was 20%, but they were paying more like 23, 24% for labor. Hmm. So, and then, it, and then it depends because when I was doing the heavy construction stuff and looking at that, their payroll costs were like four or five percent of total revenue. And most of their costs were eaten up in um, leasing or owning equipment. So I could I could find out about more heavy equipment issue, but so yeah, so 
the value is probably, or obviously, it's going to depend on who we're talking about. So if if I can produce, like as an employee, I can produce 20% of the value, and the so currently the owner is paying 23%, and I can produce 20% of the value, I will take the 20%, if, as long as it's not an hourly-based thing, I'll take the 20% and let him keep the extra 3%, because he's already paying the 20%. Or you can split the, or you can split the difference and say, okay, I'll pay you 21.5%, and I'll take the extra half. Uh, percent and a half there on that. And the owner should be really happy with that because it's going to make him, that'll probably make him thirty or $40,000 more a year on the chicken play side. And doing a split like that with the heavy equipment guy, even at the 4 or 5%, he was going to be able to keep an extra million dollars a year. So if you're so if you're an employee and you want to go to the owner and say, hey, instead of being paid hourly, I would rather be paid performance based. Commission, or if people don't understand PJs, you can say, I'd rather be paid commission. Let me just use the call flat rate. I mean, the how, how? I mean, if there's five employees. Are you able to pay four of them hourly and one of them commission-based in a scenario like Chick-fil-A, or do they all have to be commission-based for you to split that um, 20%? You can make it complicated and split it, but I would, I, what I would suggest is paying some kind of a base, base salary or rate and then a commission on top of it. But if, they, if there's four employees think they can do what a fifth employee does, then they should be able to split that base pay rate between them. So if they're all getting $10 an hour and one of them goes away, they also get a $2 rate plus commission. Oh, right. So, or, or if they have to bring on another person... Right, then everybody's pay is going to be cut by two dollars and fifteen cents to get that person up to ten bucks. Or they're all making, you know, instead of ten dollars, they're all making, they're all getting two dollars taken away from them. But you'd have to. So if it's five and you go to six, then they all get two dollars taken away. So they're now all six people are making eight dollars an hour plus commission. Yeah. So should you let the employees know just from the top, like, hey, here's the base of what we can pay, you know? Uh, I, I actually, I actually we ha- think... We have, we have allocated 40 hours per person per week. So there's five of you. So we've got 200 hours. And this is this is the rate we're paying, 10 bucks an hour. So we're paying $2,000 an hour for this week, so whether there's, you know, five of you or three of you or eight of you, it's all going to be split between the 2,000. Is that right? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that would be a good strategy. And then just say on top of that, uh, 
Well, the, the I mean, that, that's only that's only that's only what ten percent of the profit. So the other twenty thousand or the other two thousand. Is it two thousand? Now you 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 explain to the you explain to the whole revenue model. You say okay, the way this works, you need to explain to people in a simple fashion how much money the company's making. So it's revenue. Just say okay, currently. Over the last year, we've done 23%. Um, it's cost us 23% for labor. So let's figure out how we can have you keep more of that 23%. So if there's five of you, you know, let's split that out. We'll give you a base. We'll give you a base pay as just part of. I mean, that base pay is going to be similar to rent or something. It's just going to be the same for every hour. And then what, what makes it up the difference is the fluctuation in revenue. And so then that's where you build in the commission base to say, okay, you know, if, you know, at lunchtime, we're paying, really, we're paying like 10% labor and we're making, you know, 90%, 90% of that, you know, so our profit goes way up at lunchtime. And so if you're at lunchtime, you know, if you, if you're at lunchtime, then you'll make more money if you work during lunchtime or dinner rush or whatever. So you'll make more money during those periods. But the other times, you're just going to get the base rate. And sometimes, some hours, you won't make commission because there's not enough revenue being generated. But you're getting your base pay for those hours. You know, we want to make sure you're making money if you're here. And then we just want to give you some more incentive to be here when it's busy. So... Employees would rather work on busy times than on slack times. Mm. Okay. So, and I, I think there's probably an hour-based commission, and then there's probably a monthly-based commission. So, and then that would be, you know, for every month, if we make this much profit, then we have a we have an extra bonus pool that we can split between all the employees. So even the employee who, you know, maybe the employee who just comes in and works lunch rushes, you know, so he, that person, that person only works, you know, maybe that person only works five hours a week. But they're during, they're during a critical time, so they get part of that whole bonus for the whole month. You know what I'm saying? So they get their commission for that hour. But then there's people, if you need people to come in and prep, and there's not really a chance for them to make, right. to make the higher commission hourly, and so that's why the monthly would be okay. So maybe they work, you know, maybe they work uh, 40 hours a week, but they're not during, they're during the rushes. They're just there in the morning. So they get there at 3 in the morning, and they work until 11, and then their prep job is done. I mean, could you make it so that the prep time, uh, how, how would you turn that into a, a, an well, incentive for, where people would want to work it? So for prep time, the better you get at forecasting what people are going to want. So there's some perishable stuff in there. So, for instance, like lettuce, maybe you can prep enough lettuce for two days. So... The one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to run out of something during the rush and miss out on that revenue. So you could do it on, okay, if we don't run out of lettuce during the rush, then 
you know, like that. And maybe you can prep something for five days. So they come in and prep all that five days, and then they get a commission on what is prepped. But if they run out of something, then they they obviously are not going to get the revenue that goes along with whatever that sold. So you can figure out some kind of strategy for it. Seems like a lot, of, a lot of uh, like how do how do you track that? Seems like a tracking nightmare. Um, all of it. Track well, well, tracking lettuce is just like how much are you spending on lettuce? So the company knows how much money is getting spent on lettuce. And then the person who's prepping it needs to understand. Okay, this is what the lettuce costs were. But, and this is what percentage of, you know, the revenue the lettuce is. So if you can reduce, if there's some way to reduce lettuce cost, especially like you over prep and then have to throw away half your stuff, because I'm sure restaurants aren't completely tracking that stuff down. But yeah, you could, I mean, that's one of the things Red List, well, Red List has that on their roadmap for inventory control stuff. But Redless could do it. Hmm. That'd be pretty cool. So, also, it'd be I, nice to keep the data for the year or over the course of multiple years, so that you knew, hey, you know, for the last three years, on this day, we've done, we've we've used this much product. I I think it's, I think that. If you get down to the day or the hour, I don't, it, there's too many variables outside of the restaurant environment to determine that. But I think you could do trends. Like you could look at, okay, this is kind of our average over time. And then, especially if the managers and the employees, especially if you could retain those people for a long time, they would have a better sense of, like, oh, we know, for instance, in Utah, it's general conference weekend, and so we know we're going to need 40,000 Chick-fil-A sandwiches, you know, at the City Creek mm-hmm. location during right. general conference. Yeah. So those types of events would trigger those where, like, if they know there's a jazz game that night, you know, there may be an uptick. And so they say, okay, this is how much more we do on jazz game night. And they could even look at whether – the jazz win or lose, the speed of that makes a difference. But that's a uh, – it's interesting with – there's – I think it's Covey that wrote the book called Four Disciplines of Execution. And so they have – he has two – he says there's two types of measures. That there's leading indicators and lagging indicators. And so there's leading indicators, like the prepping is a leading indicator. Like I can prep so much. But the lagging indicator is – how much actually got used. So I can control how much I prep, but if I over-prep and I have to throw stuff away, then, you know, I've wasted that time. And so... And product. Yeah, time and product, yeah. So I want to push into the, the book Abundance that I've been reading. And it's talking about how much more is available now than has ever been available. 
So the the first thing the book starts off with is a, a explaining about how much how many hours it took to how many hours it took of work did it take to produce an hour's worth of light equivalent to a hundred watt light bulb. And so what's looking at the end of the piece rate version of it is the seventeen fifty PC they figured it took four hundred hours to produce the materials to uh or to create the materials that would produce an hour's worth of light that could be generated by a hundred watt light bulb panel. So what year was that? What? Seventeen fifty PC. 1750 BC, like Babylon. 1750 BC? Yeah. And it took 400 hours? Man yeah, hours? Either, yeah, to like cut the wood or, you know, um, kill the whale to make the fat. Yeah, kill the whale to make the fat or to grow the olives that you're going to press to get enough oil to burn for, or wood, to burn for an hour that would give you that much light. So, if there hadn't been a ton of improvement, by, by the year 1800, it had improved to 50 hours. So it was 50 hours. 1800 A.D. 1800 A.D., yeah. So over the course of 4,000 years, over yeah, over four thousand years. We they got, are they, looking, they got it down to about fifty man hours. Fifty man hours, yeah. So then but there was a huge increase between eighteen hundred and nineteen hundred. In nineteen hundred it was a, it was between four and five hours to produce an hour's worth of light. And was that before electricity? So electricity was electricity. No, electricity had been around, and I actually looked that up to see when the first electric, and it was really rudimentary, really small, just kind of experiment. The first electric generator was invented in 1831. So the obviously electric motors. Well, a generator basically is an electric motor. Because you can push power into that same generator and it uh, produces whatever. But they didn't start using it for motors for a while. So, and I haven't looked up when they use it for motors. But anyway, so but now, fast forward to today, or in, now it was in 2000. So when they looked at this again, it was in 2000, or when they did the study. In 2000, it took one second of length of labor to produce an hour's worth of light. Hmm. So, but this is why they're talking about the abundance. Like, we just have so much more available to them. It's funny because they're looking over the city at night in Salt Lake, and there's so many lights, and they're just burning. It's like, nobody really cares, but they're not really, they have no function at all. They're like, well, very little function. Like, 
they're lighting up a sign on a building that nobody cares about. Yeah. You know? Because there's, there's so much, we're so abundant that the power that took so many man hours in, you know, previous years to do that. Mm-hmm. So, of course, it, the, the, the theory of abundance, you have to look at the developing world and they have to have a term PLP, which means bottom of the pyramid, where those people are living on less than $2 a day. And in Clayton Christensen and this other, Irma Afasa, his, they called it, they called it the prosperity paradox. They're talking about all these developing countries where these groups are non-consumers. So they, they, they are starting to take advantage, now they're starting to take advantage of technology gains. And there's still, even in the developed world, there's still problems with, you know, the infrastructure in the United States is really old. So he's talking about all these opportunities to change the world. And so I'd always, I mean, through most of my life, I've thought about what's happening in Africa and other third world countries. And just thinking, you know, there's not a whole lot I could do. I could donate some money, but I don't even really believe that's doing very much. So, but this book goes it goes into the technologies that are significantly impacting the world. So, one of the one of the things is a clean water. Some guy, and this was after the Katrina, and it took five days to get water, clean water, to the people at the Superdome in New Orleans. He said one of the problems with disasters is always the first thing that people shift into a disaster area is water because they can't get clean water. And so it would be a lot better if you had water cleaning facilities, like easily set up water cleaning facilities just locally. And I mean, they have, they're having the same problem in the third world countries. And so, I mean, one of the things, the guy, is, I think it was the live straw or whatever, so he created a way to clean up a lot of water quick, quickly, these filters. He said there's one of the problems was that the osmosis filters can't filter out arsenic and viruses. Because viruses and arsenic are too small for the osmosis filters. But he created a filter that would filter out the arsenic and the, the viruses. Hmm. And they can do... And, they can do a lot of water, and I can't remember what the energy needs are, but it's not its not the economies of scale haven't quite hit it yet, but it's still not that expensive to do that much cleaning. Oh, and the other thing is uh, desalinization. Because if you desalinate water, you don't really have a water problem. You just have to clean water. Like from so, the ocean? If you can take ocean water. Yeah, if you could, yeah, if you could do ocean water. But right now, the ocean water, the desalinization of ocean water is too expensive. Well, when I say too expensive, it takes too much energy to do the process that they currently have it. Another thing is uh, human waste. And someone has invented there are toilets that don't require any pipes because they process all of the waste. They clean up the water, and they take the waste, and basically it's a positive energy gain 
with however it processes the waste, like burns it or whatever it does. It like there are toilets, and I don't know how much they cost. I need to look this up because I just read about this last night. There are toilets that will produce more energy than they. I mean, they will produce excess energy from the poop and the urine. And I think the the stuff that comes out of it can be used as fertilizer. So that's another problem is because they say, you know, the world's population is going to get to a certain point and we can't produce enough food. But if we're using fertilizer from our own toilets and we're not using, we're not wasting the water, then, you know, and the toilet is actually generating electricity that you can plug in and charge your phone with. It's it's something that it will help the first world, and if they create them cheap enough, then they're going to be able to put those in the third world. And so this is one of the things where I've always thought I couldn't do anything to help Africa, but this abundance one is just talking about it's all these it's do-it-yourselfers that are overcoming, like, major problems. Like, one of the things that the government has, like, $10, $10 billion set aside to uh, map the human genome, and they said it was going to take, like, 50 years or something. Well, some some guy, some just regular guy, or, yeah, some regular scientist guy, he raised, like, $100 million, and they did the whole thing in, like, a year and a half. And so once you've got this human genome, then you can start to experiment with that code. And so because of because of what he did, there's there's now he said for like a thousand dollars on eBay, you can buy a DNA kit and start messing with DNA to see what you can produce. And so they've got they have these like DNA building block sequences or something. There's like 5,000 of them out there now. And so people, they're solving all kinds of problems, uh, biology-type problems. So there's all these do-it-yourselfers out there that are doing that. Wow. Yeah, and so after listening to that, I'm thinking, we should be able to get together just people we know to try to tackle the problem with, like, creating – because a lot of that stuff's open source, so creating the toilet that's – feasible, because if you, seriously, if we could create a toilet that was economically viable, that was cheaper, one, it's because you don't have to take care of all the other stuff, but if you could create that toilet and then sell it in the United States, I mean, you would make so much money. And it would be helping, it would be helping the world, too. And so this is the, this is the crazy thing, I'm just, it's, the paradigm in my head has just shifted because I'm like, dude, we can totally, we can go after these kinds of things that would make us filthy rich if we can figure out how to do those things. Like solving world problems, but for like greedy ideas. I mean, just, you know, so I, I'm going to start talking to my classes too. I'm going to just say, dude, there's, so, and there's so many things like that toilet thing. The technology's already there. They just haven't tweaked it enough. The one thing that they were talking about in the book, but I also talked about in that other book with uh, Clayton Christensen, The Pro- Prosperity Paradox, that 
cell phones at first were so expensive that one guy wanted to do cell phone service in Bangladesh. And back then, handsets were like 400 bucks, and minutes were on average 50 cents a minute. But he knew that the economies of scale would catch up to that, and so he started working on the infrastructure there. And now that company, I think he said, with it's that company made something like thirty billion dollars and is like ten percent or three percent of something of Bangladesh's GDP. That cell phone company, and then they started to realize that the studies they're doing is because the cell phones are in the hands of those people, uh, the GDP rises. It's like point zero one percent for every cell phone. That's uh, every. I think it's every. If one person in a group of 10 get a cell phone, then that will raise the GDP by 0.01% or something, which is a huge amount just for one cell phone. How does that one cell phone do that? Well, the one cell phone is so it gives them access, even though these are like 1G and 2G networks, it still gives them access to information. So like if a fisherman has a cell phone and he's fishing out there and he can look, he can get a text message and tell him which port is uh, which port is buying what he's got at the highest price, and he goes there, and that's how it raises the GDP because oh. he's making more money. And so all of these micro-entrepreneurs are being able to get information to help them, you know, be more profitable in their own little companies. That's what that's how the cell phone helps. So, yeah, and the guy – and the reason the guy – wanted the cell phone services because he was, somebody was sick in his family. He traveled for like four hours to try to get the medicine. When he got there, the place was closed. And so that's when he thought, man, if I would have had a cell phone, I could have just called them and found out what time they were open. And he wouldn't have wasted all that time. And so he started his own cell phone company. Yeah, so he started that cell phone company in Bangladesh. took him a long time. People were laughing at him. Like, they can't even buy food. Why are they going to buy a cell phone? And so he, was he also helping to put up the cell towers? And oh yeah, so he he spent like 1.2 billion dollars in infrastructure in Bangladesh. Wow! But it's like a yeah, but it's like a 30 billion dollar year industry now. Mm-hmm. So oh, and the the other thing that was a cell phone that raises uh, standards of living is because people can start banking. They can bank with their cell phones. He said, you know, he said, he said the cheapest cell phones now are better than the top of the line PCs and Macintoshes like 10 years ago. Wow. So we're basically putting, yeah, and, and it'll just keep going like that. I mean, you'll be able to, I was thinking, you know, what could I do that would change my life? And one of the things that I want, it's just like I have to go. I have to have a 4K monitor like everywhere I go, or I just it's, it, I struggle to work. Right. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, but it's too, it's too hard to carry around a 4K monitor. So how am I going to solve that problem? It be, before I thought I I can't really solve that problem myself. But after listening to this, I'm like, holy crap! I could totally solve that problem myself. So I'm thinking I could get I could either make a projector. Or I could figure out how to, because they've got, um, they've got that, those flexible screen technology stuff now. So those are two things that I can look into. But with the projector, I can probably figure out the projector thing by myself. 
I mean, they have you know, what's, well, what's, they have projectors. What would be different about the one you would need? Well, okay, so a 4K projector right now is about a thousand dollars, the lowest price one, and they and go that, all the way up. And that's to like, like blue, and that's like uh, how do you connect that to your cell phone or your PC? Well, yeah, so I can connect that. I can connect that to my cell phone now. Okay. Oh, like wireless, so, like Bluetooth or something? No, you just – they have little – like I have a USB-C phone, and they're just USB-C connectors okay. to HDMI. Okay. But I could do it with – I could do it with Bluetooth. I don't know how – I don't know how good it would do on 4K, but it does, like, standard – the 1080p ones without any problem. But I'm just thinking you can buy – so then – just thinking, I mean, this is only something I've been thinking about for like two days. The other thing, I, and I just barely thought about this, I could buy four 1080p projectors that are like, they're like a hundred bucks a piece now for these mini ones. So for 400 bucks, I could have basically the same screen real estate that I have with my 4K. Hmm. I mean, I, I could do that and try to figure out how to hook up four, uh, try to, how to figure out how to hook up four projectors. Or I can just start figuring out how to make my own or go get funding to build these mini 4K things where I can use that 4K screen. And why stop with 4K? Why not make it, you know, get more pixels into that same space? And I'm just thinking, it's going to change... I, and I'm surprised because I've been using a 4K monitor for five years. I'm surprised more people aren't using it. Every time I get a developer to switch, they they don't they can't go back. I've gotten two developers at Redlist Red Pepper that are switched. And it's funny because they have their own monitor. They brought their own monitors in just like me. Because one guy he bought it. He was intrigued when he saw mine, and so he went out and checked. He checked some out. And I don't know if he's married, but he's definitely got the money. He's a good developer. And so he bought one, and he was just using it at home. But it only took him three days, and he brought it in the office. And he's it's in the office now. And he may have bought another one for home, which I suspect he did. And it's just because everybody needs more real estate on their screen because they're doing more yeah. stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, it's just like you. You know you're using it now. I mean, it's so nice to have that big screen. Yeah. So it's, it's nice for, to be able to look somewhere instead of – hitting a button, switching, you know, how right. you're, you know, you, you can rotate laptops, desktop, desktops on your laptop, but it's just, you don't see the whole map. You don't see the whole picture of everything. Right. Then, yeah, it's funny because Thomas Frank, that is college info geek guy, he just did, just on Sunday, he did a, or last week, he did a, thing where he was explaining why you should use two monitors. And he was just saying... I mean, the monitors are just too expensive. I mean, that's what the hang-up's been in the past. Right. So I think if you can get, like, a little projector, a hundred-buck projector that will give you all that real estate with that resolution. Because sometimes if you're broadcasting just... I mean, if you're showing, shining your projector up onto a wall or something, it's just not as bright, you know? And, oh, yeah, definitely not as bright. And sometimes maybe the 
the resolution isn't as good. Like if you're trying to read words or put together a spreadsheet or something. Right. Oh no, no, for for sure. Yeah. And so the projector it, it has limitations. However, I think that's the future. That's just my. That's how I'm. That's a. That's my prognostic future. That's my prophecy. That that. Yeah. Because it overcomes having to carry that big screen around. Yeah. Which is my problem right now. Dude, it'd be cool on a cell phone if you know how when you when you're using your cell phone, you've got. I mean, I I do Instagram for a number of companies, or you've always got multiple apps open on your phone, and so you have to you have to jump between the different apps. It would be cool if somebody could just throw up like a pop-up screen, put their projector, and then work all their stuff just off their cell phone. Right. Because you and can I mean, see one app at a time on your cell phone. What if you could see all your apps open on a cell phone? Yeah. On a screen? So my Is phone, I can, have two, I can have two apps open on the same screen on my phone, but they mm-hmm. have to be special apps that are like can handle that. Hmm. So, no, I mean, you're also, like, what you're talking about is coming where people will just use a cell phone-esque type device and then hook it up to a, and right now we say hook it up to a monitor, but what I'm saying is the future is the projection from that little device. Yeah. And it's not even, you know, because if you didn't have to have the screen on your phone, you just projected it someplace, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, it would be so much easier to just carry around a pad that was a certain size and you just projected it onto the pad. Like if you're on a on a flight on a plane, you just roll down your screen and project it there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things where I think people would give us money to help try to develop, like, that next level of stuff. So that's one of the things that's solving our own problem, a couple of problems for us, is we want bigger screens, and then we want more portability. Yep. So, yeah. So it's just kind of a fun – the whole – it's fun reading this book and just having my ideas, like, you need to open – you need to expand your mind. What do we do about traffic on the road? That is a good – that is a good question. And I thought about that too. Like what do we do? What one of the one of the solutions is going to be the autonomous vehicle. That's going to be one of the solutions. So but it, as communication gets better, we we won't have to travel as much. But it, I mean I, I was thinking about what if you had what if you had some kind of a vehicle that because now you can drive in between cars. What if, what if you had a vehicle that you could just lift up and it would just drive in between the, the lanes? Sorry, he's like, you're just driving over other cars. Uh, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking. I mean, last night, I mean, St. George, it's a small town still, but 5 o'clock, we, I ran to get Little Caesar's Pizza, and there's a Maverick by our house across the bridge, and yeah. I waited for three lights. I was there almost 10 minutes, 
And it's funny because the the Washington City manager was right next to me. And so I wanted to roll down my window and say something like, hey, you know, how's the traffic? Because that's what they deal with. That's one of the main things they deal with. Right. And when the light turned, when the turning, there's only one turning lane, and so that's part of the bottleneck. But when it turned green, the car in the front wasn't going right away. And I looked over at the city manager, and he, like, kind of throws up his arms, like, looking at that car going, what are you doing? You know? And it's just, man, traffic flow. And, and St. George is a small town. I mean, you're looking at, like, huge traffic centers like L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle and all, you know, any big city, it, traffic is such a big deal. Like that. Right. Elon Musk has a thing called hyper. He called it's called the Hyperloop, and I don't completely understand it. But it, the the basic concept of it is uh, like a banking tube, except it's big enough so you can drive your car into it and things. Yeah. And so you just get into like a tube, and it just shoots you down the pipe. Is it above ground or underground? Uh, underground, but I mean, I'm just thinking, why not, like on the side of the freeways, why not just put, just start building those things? So these are the types of things that people need to start thinking about. Is like, okay, what if we build a tube just for people to put it, sit in? Kind of like a bus. Like, you just get in and it just gets, everybody gets pushed into the tube and then you're just flying down in the tube. You know? Mm-hmm. And then you and then these tubes, like I don't know, just the tubes split off or whatever they do wherever they go, and you can get off. I mean, that's one of the problems that's got to have to be overcome. How do you get in and out of the tube without slowing down everybody else? Right. So, but these these are the types of problems that we should be thinking about, and that we could. If we can figure them out, we're going to make a lot of money. We should get together with people and talk talk about it. Mm-hmm. So. I'm at work now. All right. So I've got to go add. I got to go add my value. But this has been fun. Hopefully, you're thinking differently a little bit now. Let's go build a toilet or some way to alleviate traffic. Dude, the toilet would be sweet. So. Yeah. All right, dude. Thanks for the talk. All right. Yeah. We will uh, talk to you later. We need to get a couple of these going, and then we can start our podcast, whatever we want to call it, the performer, the adding value or something. So. Oh, we, we, didn't, we didn't even talk about the advice app, <laughs> the Adderall. All right. <laughs> that'll be that'll be next then. So. All right. Okay. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.